When I was in grade school, so I think I was probably around nine, um, there was a rumor going around that sex was when two people rubbed their butts together. And so for a long time, that's, like, what I thought it was. I, like, was hearing that, and then I was also hearing that sex was dangerous and that you could die. And I didn't understand. Like, there was just a disconnect where I was like, how can you die from rubbing your butt against someone else's butt? From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. You know, it's a great question. How can you die from rubbing your butt against someone else's butt? I feel like it really captures the flavor of bafflement that comes with the first stages of learning about sex. Try explaining sex to someone who's never heard of it, and it all sounds highly unlikely. On today's show, we're returning to the dawn of sexual knowledge. What is sex? For all of us, there was a time when we did not know, and we wanted very much to find out. So we put the question to our friends, our colleagues, our listeners. Looking back on our sexual educations and miseducations, what were some of the earliest answers we found? When I was in the first grade, my friend, an older and wiser woman in the third grade, told me with much certainty that sex is when a boy pees in your mouth and you swallow it. I thought sex was kissing and falling because that's what they did on TV. They would kiss and then they would fall out of frame. And I had no idea what happened after that. I remember thinking sex was kind of like plugging something in. So I knew that you put like penis and vagina and I just thought you just sat there like that. Maybe had a conversation, I don't know. (laughs) But I did not know there was any movement involved other than basically plugging in. These are the kinds of answers you arrive at when you do not yet possess the impulse to plug in. You've got a general sense that mouths and genitals are involved, but you're still unclear on the motivations or agenda. And then, eventually, you catch a glimpse. You see why someone might want to do something like rub butts, even if you're not quite sure how to get there. I remember the first time I felt a confusing feeling and I didn't know what it was, was when I saw we watched The NeverEnding Story in school. We watched it when I was in like the second or third grade, and they have this character named Atreyu. He was probably, like, 12, and I think I was, like, 7 or 8 when I was watching this. I was just like, I just want to be near this person in this way that I don't think is—it feels new. And also, like, not in a way that I want to be near anybody in my life. (laughs) Does that make sense? Maybe I'd, like, want him to, like, make a joke about my glasses or, like, pull on my ponytail or, like, maybe he'd want to, like— read a book with me. I had a lot of crushes and I would like fantasize about my crushes and what was going to happen with us. And I like wanted to kiss people. But then my fantasies would like hit a certain point where I'd be like, I don't know where else to take this. Like we would like kiss and then it would be like, I feel like it needs to escalate more, but I don't know how. I like couldn't imagine like what the next step would be. This is the follow-up question that emerges after you start asking what is sex? What does sex have to do with me? In seventh grade, I remember Jessica Liddy walking laps beside me in P.E. and telling me about slumber parties where boys touched girls' boobs. She'd been to these parties, she said. 
she could take me too. And at the time, I remember, this idea struck me as so self-evidently absurd that I assumed it was proof that Jessica was a liar. I could not imagine that such a thing might be happening to actual people I actually knew. Plus, I knew Jessica was a liar because she'd previously claimed to have once walked arm-in-arm across campus with two of the most popular girls in our grade. She had not done that. So, vis-a-vis the boob-touching parties, I did not believe her. Jessica was one of the friends I'd made the previous year in the computer lab. See you in the computer lab, she'd written in my yearbook at the end of sixth grade. The computer lab was a place to work on our presentations about Imperial China in history class. But it was also a place to look at the website Hamster Dance. Mostly, though, what we wanted to do in the computer lab was to go in chat rooms, claim to be in our 20s, and get men to write us erotica. We talked about this as a prank. How dumb they were, we'd crow to each other, shrieking at their inability to tell that we were kids. They were so dumb. The things they were writing were crazy. How could they write us things that were so crazy? Like, obviously crazy. Like, people wouldn't do that stuff, probably. But, like, also, though, what if they did? Needless to say, on a not very subterranean level, we were into it. And I was an asshole for thinking of Jessica Liddy as a liar, because clearly I was a liar, too. Going online every afternoon and inventing new answers to the question, ASL? I was reminded of all this recently, watching the show Pen15. It's part of the reason we wanted to make this episode, actually. It's about two girls who are 13 in the year 2000, just like I was. And because they're middle schoolers at the dawn of the millennium, the internet is becoming available just as sex is coming into view. There's a whole episode devoted to AOL Instant Messenger. And one of the characters, Maya, who's played by Pen15's co-creator, Maya Erskine, discovers the sexual possibilities of telling lies online. Maya and her best friend get their screen names and quickly find themselves drawn to the chat room Hot People of Franklin County. That's where Maya meets Fly Miami Bro 22. She tells him she's 26 and blonde. He tells her. He's 30, he's a computer programmer and a total gym rat. Oh my God, he's a freaking gym rat. That's like, what is that? Not really knowing is part of the thrill. Intoxicated with her internet flirtation, Maya prints a photo of the guy who comes up when she does a Yahoo search for Jim Rat plus Miami plus computer. As her chat with Fly Miami Bro intensifies, a man in a polo shirt and carpenter jeans materializes in her mind's eye. Yo, girl, you got an email address? Yeah, I'll give it to you, hottie. That's hot. You're hot. You're so freaking hot. I've never felt this way before. Me neither. My heart's gonna burst. Bang! Am I dead? You can take it, bitch! Because I'm in heaven with you right now. Bury me! When I think of other girls, I want to barf my guts out. I want to eat that barf and guts up like a big old bowl of lentil soup. Yum, 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 yum. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world, I feel like I can't take it. I love you more than I love my own dad. What, John? Ah! Why are you still up? I just finished the research project. Fly Miami Bro turns out not to be a 30-year-old gym rat any more than Maya is a 26-year-old blonde. A twist that any non-seventh grader could see coming from a mile away. But even if the two of them aren't especially good liars, AIM gives them something important. It's a chance to try out being someone else. Someone who knows about sex. Speaking as themselves, they never would have been able to engage in surreal, pseudo-dirty talk about lentil barf and exploding hearts and dads. 
When you're at this age, sexual knowledge is like one of those medieval drawings of a lion done by a monk who had never seen a lion. Maybe someone had once described a lion to him or to someone he knew, but this is no substitute for firsthand experience. Still, he's doing the best he can with what he's got. My family has always been very into art, so I grew up going to museums with my father and my grandfather. And normally the statues are either larger than life or they're on a pedestal, so they're taller than you are. And I was small, I was short, I was a kid. So looking up at them, you would really only see the end of the penis to start with, so it was foreshortened. And then most of the penises um, on classical statues are very small. So they're less than an inch, I would say, long. So that's what I thought a penis was. It wasn't until I was 12 where I had a Tumblr, and I was scrolling through Tumblr, and there was a gif of two people having sex that came out of nowhere. I wasn't following any sexual Tumblr, anything. And the penis was huge. I kept thinking, oh my God, it's it's long and it's straight and it's smooth. <laughs> and it freaked me out so much. That's how I started watching porn was because I thought to myself, I need to get used to the idea of what a penis looks like. So when I was 11 or 12, I think my family had this girl from Northern Ireland come stay with us as part of this program that they used to do. I don't know if they still do this, where it was sort of like to show Northern Irish kids that Catholics and Protestants could get along. You'd have a Protestant come stay with you if you were a Catholic family and vice versa. And we were Catholic, so she was Protestant. And I thought she was very sophisticated because she had a boyfriend and just seemed to know things about sex that I didn't. And I don't remember how this came up, and it's mortifying to even think about it. Like, we must have been using extremely veiled language, but at some point, we started talking about masturbation techniques. <laughs> and um, she told me that what she did was put a nail polish bottle in her vagina. Like, just the, the cap part, you know, like an Essie where it's like a thin white cap. And she was like... We sort of were, like, explaining each other's techniques. I would go into a room, try her technique. I'd come back out. She'd go in, try my technique. And when I was in the room trying her technique, I was sort of like, this doesn't this doesn't work like my way. This doesn't—this is just something sitting there. And she would just—I was like, what do you do—like, she would read a magazine just with a nail polish bottle just there. And I was like— God, if this is what sex is going to be like, I do not have a lot to look forward to. I have three older brothers, and they were always watching MTV on television. My mom thought it would corrupt me, so I got my own television with cable in my bedroom at age eight, which is so early. <laughs> so Red Two Diaries came on at like 11 o'clock on Cinemax, and it's— <laughs> David Duchovny is a man who just lost his fiance and finds her diaries— and, like, reading them to get to know his late fiancé. And the diaries are just full of her erotic longings and all the scenarios she wishes that she could be in sexually. And they're all sort of, like, softcore porn, like, 1990s silk lingerie satin sheets sex. And that was, like, my earliest introduction into, oh, this is what adults do. It always involved more than one woman. It was two women, one man. 
like ornate like curtains hanging down with a canopy bed and like satin sheets. Nobody had genitals, but there were a lot of boobs. Saxophones and moaning. Boobs moaning, no genitals, satin lingerie. And then when I started having sleepovers, the thing to do would be like, look, guys, we can watch like nudie stuff. And I remember inviting one of my school friends over and she just started crying hysterically when I showed her Red Shoe Diaries and then asked to go home. Well, I did remember asking my mom why she was why she went home. And my mom was like, well, you tell me. What did you do? And I was like, I don't know. I, I guess showed her. I showed her. <laughs> I did admit to showing her Red Shoe Diaries. It's, again, a wonder they never took that television away. And my mom said that some people are uncomfortable with sex and you can't you cannot do that. And so I remember being like, well, how sad for her because this show rules. We were not friends after that. People still like to come for sleepovers, but I definitely was the porn house. But nobody ever, you know, that's the kind of thing that you imagine would make you sort of like the outcast kid, you know? But I think it actually made me a little more popular. One night in eighth grade, I was having a sleepover at my friend's house, and three other girls were there too. It was before the age where we were drinking. It was, you know, the time when you would kind of like eat ice cream and watch movies and stay up late. That was like the bad behavior. My friend who had just come back from camp said, uh, at camp, you know, this guy, he went down on me. And we were like, what? What is that? What does that mean? What? We thought that was like so crazy. And she was just like, well... I'll show you. And one of the other girls who was there was like, okay. And so one girl went down on another girl. And then that girl went down on another girl. And it's sort of the four of us just like experimented with oral sex together. You know, afterwards, I think we were like, I remember we went and she had like one of those cans of, like, frozen Minute made orange juice. And we went and, like, made orange juice and, like, we're j- drinking orange juice together afterwards, like, laughing about how funny it was that we had just done this. So that happened in eighth grade. And it wasn't until, like, 11th grade that a guy went down on me. And I remember when that happened... It was, like, so much more awkward and so much more, like, fumbling. And I felt so much weirder about it. And it was, it was like, not fun and it was not really exciting in the way that when my friends and I did it, it really was. There's this short period in our lives when both anything and nothing seem possible sex-wise. For many, it's a time of extreme exploratory horniness of blind, ecstatic enthusiasm. I wanted to, like, dry hump constantly. That's all I wanted to do. I thought that was, like, the best thing in the world. I just wanted to get married or be in a long-term relationship so badly because I thought that it would happen all the time. But what happens if, during that time, something comes along to squash all that enthusiasm down? What happens then? That's coming up after the break. Welcome back. This week, we are asking the question, what is sex? How did you find out about it? And we got a bunch of people to tell us about their first glimmers of sexual awareness. The first time I ever masturbated, I think I was 14. And I remember right before I had, like, I know that I was feeling that I was going to have an orgasm and I stopped myself because I thought that I was going to lose my virginity. 
For some of the people we talked to, when sex first appeared on the scene, it collided with another force in their lives. Like, I think I viewed my vagina as property that I needed to keep intact for someone else. And for a lot of those people we heard from, that force was religion. The only thing I ever heard about Mary growing up was that she was a virgin. Mm -hmm. And Mary was the only woman that I ever heard presented as a, a role model for me in the community. This is Linda K. Klein. She's a writer and speaker who grew up evangelical. Like us, she spent time talking to women she knows about their earliest understandings of sex. And Linda used those conversations as the foundation for her book. It's called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. So I joined the Evangelical Church when I was 13. It was 1991. So for me to be a seventh grader in, in early 1990s, coming into this faith with an absolute fervor of a convert, um, and to have had that moment coincide with the beginning of the purity movement, which is when we took this idea that sexual purity was an important part of being a Christian, mm -hmm. and it shifted into sexual purity being the most important way for you to express your Christianity. That emphasis on sexual purity would eventually be called purity culture. And the years before the rise of purity culture were a time when Americans were thinking about sex in new ways. So you need to remember that we were in the midst of the AIDS crisis and that there was a tremendous amount of fear that people had about literally dying. So you have a lot of sexual anxiety that was already part of culture, particularly after the sexual revolution when people are like, whoa, what's going on? Like now we're having sex, right? Like what's happening to we're our okay with this happening all to of our sudden? world? Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and, now, and now people are dying. Mm-hmm. So you take this sexual fear that was already present and you layer on a question of life or death, right? Yeah. And now, now the intensity around uh, what is our sexual ethic becomes very strong indeed. In the 1990s, that intensity translated into a political shift, the rise of abstinence-only sex ed. This was something the Christian right had been pushing for a long time. But by the 90s, they were gaining momentum. The organization True Love Waits had its first meetings in 1993. And by 1994, they were staging an event where they displayed more than 200,000 purity pledges on the National Mall. But the real victory came in 1996. That's when Bill Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act into law. Buried in the Welfare Reform Act was something called Title V, which created new federal grants that states could use if they agreed to teach only abstinence in schools. In other words, the sex education that this money paid for was, don't do it unless you're married. Every state except California has taken Title V funds at some point. So, purity culture wasn't just for evangelicals anymore. Purity culture was the law of the land. In the mid-90s, politicians were making sweeping changes to the way American kids learned about sex. Linda, meanwhile, was doing her best to be a good Christian teen. I had a boyfriend when I was 16 years old who I had only kissed, and I was utterly and absolutely crazy about him. He made me aware of every part of my body that I had not been aware of before, right? I was just absolutely on fire every time I was around him. So though we had only kissed, I was um, terrified of losing my sexual purity and of threatening him, 
you know, because we were taught within the community that it is a girl or a woman's responsibility to protect the community from sexual impurity because boys and men can't help themselves often. So you need to be responsible as a not very sexual person, of course, a woman or a girl. You need to be responsible by dressing in just the right way, walking and talking in just the right way, doing everything just right to make sure that no one has any sexual thoughts or feelings or takes any sexual actions. Which is an insane burden to play on a teenage girl. Whose toes are tingling. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So (laughs) my toes are tingling in a way that is making me think I'm going to send us both to hell, right? Um, I called up all my girlfriends in my church youth group, and we had uh, a concert of prayer, is is what the term was. What does that mean? Uh, It's when you gather together for prayer on a specific targeted topic. Mm -hmm. And that topic was that I thought God wanted me to break up with my boyfriend. And so we very seriously prayed about it, and I felt sure that it was what I needed to do. And I called him up, and I told him that I had heard from God and that I needed to break up with him. He was utterly devastated. Yeah. And I was utterly devastated. The difference was that I thought that I should be utterly devastated. I thought it was good for me. Eventually, Linda left the church. She went off to college. She found another boyfriend there, and it seemed like things were going well. I remember feeling like I was ready to um, start to explore the possibility of having sex with my long-term boyfriend. Mm -hmm. At this point, I was in my early 20s. My boyfriend and I had been together for years. Um, I felt like it was a legitimate time for me to explore, you know, making, making that choice. Yeah. And ultimately, what I found is that my body started to break down every time I would actually attempt to get into a sexual sphere with him. I would break down into tears um, every time we would try to have sex or not even try to have sex, you know, get anywhere close to that realm. And my eczema would come out and I would be scratching myself until I bled and I would be in a state of of absolute self-hatred. Back when Linda was an evangelical 16-year-old with tingling toes, The rules she lived by meant she had to take everything she was feeling and block it out. Now she'd walked away from those rules, but she couldn't get the feelings back. It was deeply inside of me. Mm -hmm. Though I was no longer part of this community, no longer surrounded by people who were telling me these messages and didn't believe the messages myself, they were still controlling my thoughts, still controlling my feelings, still controlling my behaviors, and I got really, really scared. Part of the reason these messages had embedded so deeply was because purity culture was never just about church. It had been marketed to teens in all kinds of ways. You have concerts that Mm -hmm. are uh, purity-themed, pop music that is abstinence-themed. You have cool products like T-shirts and rings and all that stuff. It started out, you know, being a very small community, Mm -hmm. um, then saturated a subculture, (laughs) then really started to infiltrate society as a whole, and pretty soon, you know, became part of the top most noticeable aspects of society, and that is pop culture. Purity culture had blown up way beyond evangelical churches and sex ed. If you were in middle school in 2000, you'll remember this too. Right around the same time Maya from Pen15 was discovering AIM, Britney Spears was staying a virgin while also dating Justin Timberlake. Jessica Simpson, whose manager dad was a preacher, was saving herself for marriage. Purity rings had become a familiar accessory on famous hands. The pop culture version of purity was sexy and happy. 
Linda, meanwhile, was miserable. I felt incredibly alone. I felt incredibly alone. The idea that I wasn't able to have sex, though I had been trying for years. So she decided to start talking to the women she'd grown up with. When I first started calling up my girlfriends from back home, I actually had no idea if they were going to also think that I was crazy. (laughs) And not only crazy, but sinful. And if they would say, the reason that you're having sexual shame and fear and anxiety is because you're sinful and shameful and, and bad. So it was really uh, with some shock that I remember hearing them share instead very similar stories from their own lives. And it was a huge shift for me internally. And ultimately, you know, that's what led me to begin the journey and say, I actually need to figure this out for real and move back to my hometown and start to do deeper conversations with people in person Like, what is going on? (laughs) I'm only going to figure this out if we sit down together. And if I start to get a sense of what's happening in other people's lives uh, so that I can have a sense of what's happening in my own life. Linda talked to single, unmarried women who tried to find loopholes to deal with their sexual feelings. Like, they'd masturbate only once a month and tell themselves it was a clinical procedure while trying to think of the laundry, a honeymoon night, or nothing at all. There was one woman who taught herself to slap her crotch whenever she felt something to make it go away. A whole generation of women like Linda were just coming into adulthood, and sexual pleasure for them had been shaped entirely by purity culture. And we heard stories like that, too. I remember going to church, and we had this lesson that was like, all right, you know, sexual sin is a sin that's next to murder. You know, like, you might as well, you know, if you're having premarital sex, like, you might as well be basically killing somebody. And then, like, the next thing we talked about was, like, but if you've been sexually assaulted or you've been raped, that's not your fault. Don't worry about that. So then in my head, I was like, okay, so if I'm wanting to be raped, like, that would be less sinful than wanting consensual sex, right? And so for the longest time, that's all I allowed myself to, like, fantasize, like, what I imagined that I desired. Once I got to college, I did have a sexual partner. And initially, I was just so confused because he kept being so loving. And I'm like, why are you being so loving? Didn't really understand, you know, didn't think that sex could be something that was like loving or intimate or enjoyable even. In 2007, the results of a decade-long study became public. Researchers had been tracking what had happened with all that money that Bill Clinton had released back in the 90s to fund abstinence-only sex ed. And the results were clear. Telling kids not to have sex didn't stop them from having sex. It didn't change the number of people they had sex with. It didn't change the age at which they first had sex. Since 1996, the federal government has spent more than $2.1 billion on abstinence-only programs. And then there were the results of Linda's informal study, all the conversations she's had with women who'd grown up in the purity movement. What we are starting to discover is that there have been other things that this teaching, particularly the purity component Uh of the abstinence-only messaging, um, has been very effective in doing, and that is creating tremendous states of shame and fear and anxiety. I think a lot of people look at my book and think to themselves, oh, that's about those evangelicals. That's about them, Mm -hmm. right? This weird person and these weird people. Uh These people who grew up in this community are experiencing these, like, really extreme things. How weird for them. How weird for them. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So 
we need to remember that evangelicals are about 25% of this country, a massive population, and that these teachings are by no means exclusive to that population. Yeah. This is something that we're all taking in. We're all taking in some degree of this toxic messaging. We, as evangelicals who grew up within the purity movement, offer a kind of mirror for the larger society. The thing that was so clear from that study was that kids' urge to figure out sex persists, no matter how much you try to deny it or smash it down. And the raw materials of sexual discovery are everywhere, even for kids growing up in the church, even within the literal church building. I remember being very young in church, reading Song of Solomon from the Bible, and one, being struck by the poetry of it, and two, realizing, oh, this is kind of nasty. Nicole Perkins is a writer and co-host of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit. She was about seven years old when she discovered Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible that is about King Solomon and one of his wives or one of the women who eventually becomes one of his wives. And she's like, she's having these dreams about him. She's lusting after him, and he's describing her breasts and her stomach and her thighs and her lips. This is two people, like, drinking from each other's navels, and that's a very, like, naughty thing. So I was very intrigued by that. People try to stress and make it seem like it's supposed to be a metaphor for the way that the church is supposed to love God. But it's like, "Mm, I don't know that we're drinking from God's navel. I don't know that we're talking about, you know, God's bosoms like doves and stuff like that. So it's very, it's very clear that it's just uh, someone sneaked in some, you know, romance in the Bible. And it got to the point where every time I was in church, I was reading Song of Solomon. And my mother, like, pulled my father to the side one day and was like, you know, your daughter's been reading this in church, right? And she made it seem like it was such a bad thing. The tone of her voice made it clear that it was a bad thing or that it was something that I should not be doing. Song of Solomon was Nicole's first answer to the question, what is sex? And as she got older, she asked a lot more questions. A lot of the time, they got shut down. Other people were uncomfortable. But she kept asking. She made it her job, eventually, talking to people about sex. She thinks that Song of Solomon put her on the right track. I don't know. I guess because I have this foundation where sex was a beautiful, tender thing between two people with feelings. That's how I went into so much of sex. You know, it was there were a lot of uncomfortable moments when I was younger because of my curiosity. But I am really grateful for that foundation of tenderness and knowing that it could be beautiful. Those early moments are formative. The ones spent fumbling on the brink of sex. And there's something irresistible about revisiting them, even if it's not exactly nostalgia. Maybe it's because, from time to time, sex makes 13-year-olds of us all. Confusion and shame do not stop when you get your braces off. And neither does the thrill of stumbling into something you don't quite understand. The times when you find yourself thinking, what is going on here? What am I doing? What even is sex? We will continue to report back on what we learn. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Lynn Levy, and Nazneen Rafsanjani. 
Mixing is by Emma Munger and Andy Christens. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarlay, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. Thanks to Anna Silman, Lisa Ryan, Katie Christensen, Tamara Brummer, Anna Foley, Kathy Tu, Sarah Mosliner, Sheeta Carr, and Joshua Harris. Thanks also to the listeners who called in to share their experiences and to the women who spoke to us about purity culture. Also, I should note, I have used a pseudonym to protect my middle school computer lab friend. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.